ಅಸತೋಮಸದ್ಗಮಯ ತಮಸೋಮ್ಯೋತಿರ್ಗಮಯ ಮೃತ್ಯುರ್ಮಾಮೃತ ಗಮಯ ಓಡಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ದಿ ಅನ್ರಿಯಲ್ ಟು ದಿಯಲ್ ಲೀಡಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಡಾರ್ಕ್ನೆಸ್ ಅನ್ ಟು ಲೈಟ್ ಲೀಡಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಡೆತ್ ಟು ಇಮಾರ್ಟ್ಯಾಲಿಟಿ ಓಂ ಫೀಸ್ 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 this morning the subject is a hymn to the devi this is about the devi suktam um a magnificent hymn found in the vedas uh, in the rigveda it's it's incredibly ancient 5000 years or more and and that this point some some of you will go there you go everything is 5000 years or more but uh it is very ancient in fact a couple of days ago i was listening to a discussion in which one of the participants was Jessica Fraser she is a professor of indian philosophy at oxford university and she is saying that uh, these can be roughly dated by the latest modern uh, most conservative kind of scholarship to be about 1700 uh, bce which means that's about 3700 years uh, before our time which is like 1200 years before the buddha so more than 1000 years before the buddha so 3700 years uh, 5000 years give or take to a 10 or 12 centuries you know <laughs> yes so incredibly ancient and this is the oldest the earliest existing record of a religious spiritual philosophical um text and the first teaching by a woman by a, a rishi who was a, a woman all those centuries ago a voice coming down to us recorded perfectly transmitted exactly in the language in which she spoke um we have heard it chanted many times because this is the time when we worship uh, the divine mother in the form of durga we can see and um, one of the common practices during this time which is called navaratri in hinduism is to chant the durga saptashati the chandi and the chandi is always chanted with the devi suktam with this hymn so the hymn to the divine mother and part of that is this particular hymn to the devi who was she we know that she, uh, her father was a rishi a sage who the the ones who saw the vedic mantras the rishis rishaya mantra drashtara the rishis are the ones who saw the mantras literally saw these truths um that's where the whole idea of uh, of philosophy comes from in india if you see the word for philosophy in sanskrit it is darshan literally to see see the ultimate truth and we were always told when we studied philosophy that you know uh, philosophy i still remember the voice of my uh, philosophy teacher as a young novice monk there was this uh, old uh, gentleman who was a disciple of swami abedananda our swami abedananda this professor nirodbaran chakravarti is retired professor of philosophy who would start his class to teach these would be monks about western philosophy he would start by saying please remember that philosophy in the western sense is different from darshan in the indian sense he it was customary to make this distinction so philosophy is love of wisdom uh, it's about thinking philosophically about philosophical issues whereas darshan is seeing the ultimate truth but this distinction is not valid actually i uh 
um, I read a few years ago, this French philosopher, Luc Ferry. So the French have a completely different way, a, a unique way, independent way of thinking about it. So he's written this book on Western philosophy. And if you read that book, you'll see there is absolutely no reference to any, any English-speaking author. So there is no philosophy worth the name in England, Australia, USA, Canada. None of the English-speaking world have anything worthwhile to say about philosophy. It's all French, German, and the ancient Greeks. Anyhow, the point he makes is philosophy is not the right word. The right word is theory. And theory, he says, theory is derived from theos and around, which means to see the ultimate truth. It's exactly the same meaning as darshan. Anyway, so the earliest record of these philosophical teachings is this, this hymn from the Rig Veda, which is the oldest existing religious spiritual text of, of humanity today. And there also, it is from a woman, let us remember today. And she speaks about her realization. Her name was Vak. Her father's name was the Rishi Ambrin. So her full name would be Vak Ambrini. So this uh, lady, this Rishi, who lived 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, her voice is coming down to us. Uh, we have heard this again and again in India. You hear it every year, this chanting. I never really reflected on the meaning until this time, this occasion. I thought this is incredible. We'll see that today, what I'm going to talk about. Whatever we have in religion, spirituality, philosophy, not only in Vedanta, not only in the whole of Hinduism, in all the world's traditions, all the important ideas, the important developments, the central teachings are all there. Thousands of years before the other rishis, before the, you know, the Buddha and before uh, uh, Shankara, uh, before the Upanishads, uh, um, historically speaking, uh, before all that we do, you know, our Rigdrishya Viveka and Aparokshanubhuti, the seer and the seen and the five levels of the human personality, pure consciousness, existence, bliss, Brahman, Atman, all of that, before all of that, before God and religion and avatar, before all of that, all of these ideas are already there. What that lady said nearly 5,000 years ago, I feel we have not gone one inch beyond that in these 5,000 years of history. That's a tremendous claim to be making, but we'll explore that today. Uh, this incredible hymn. So it's in the Rig Veda. What I'll do is I'll request our IT team. We let's, let's hear it first before we go into it. Let's hear it in two versions. One version will be the, uh, the precise, correct Vedic chanting, the way it is technically correctly chanted. So that we will hear first. And then there is the more familiar version, more familiar to us in Bengal, for example, which every, everybody in Bengali families, you know, you wake up on Mahalaya and it's playing the Biren Bhadra performance. There's a beautiful chorus rendition, chorus singing of the same sutra, uh, of the same suktam. So first, the uh, correct Vedic ch chanting. Devi Suktam, please. Aham Rudre Bhervasu Bhisharam Yahama Aditya Ruta Vishwade Vaihi Aham Mitra Varu No Bhabi Bharm Yaham Indragni Aham Aham Soma Mahanasam Vibharm Yahan Pashta Aramuta Pushanam Bhagam 
ಅಹಂದಾಧಾಮಿದ್ರವೀಣಂಹವಿಷ್ಮತೆ ಸುಪ್ರಾವ್ಯಜಮಾನಸುನ್ಮತೆ ಅಹಂ ರಾಷ್ಟ್ರೀ ಸಂಗಮನೀವಸೂನಾಂಚಿಕಿತುಷೀ ಪ್ರಥಮ ತಾಮೇವಾಭ್ಯದಪುರುತ್ರಭೂರಿಸ್ಥಾತ್ರಾಂಭೂರ್ಯಾಭೇಶಯಂತೀಂ ಅಹಮೇವಸ್ವಯಮಿದಂಬಾಮಿಜುಷ್ಟಂದೇವೇಭಿಋತಮಾನುಷೇಭಿ ಅಹಂಜನಾಯಸಮದಂಕೃಣೋಮ್ಯಹಂದ್ಯಾಪೃಥಿವೀ ಅಹಮೇವಾತೀವಪ್ರವಾಮ್ಯಾರಭಾಮಾಭುವನಿವಿಶ್ವಾರ್ಷನ್ ವಿಚ್ we hear you know from childhood onwards i would hear early in the morning on mahalaya when the devi paksha starts so our parents my mother would put on the radio <laughs> so it's a memory etched into the uh, into every i think at every bengali child probably but it's a very beautiful chorus let's hear that ಅಹಮ್ ಶ್ರೀ 
really magnificent and the even the poetry of it which we shall see so what does she say here which is so significant so amazing first she says she opens in a uh, very high tone you see here she is speaking of her own realization see she has, she is enlightened she realizes identity with brahman so so she is speaking now not only as this person who has become enlightened but from the perspective of brahman from the perspective of the ultimate reality now in vedanta we will ask this question which perspective is she speaking from from the absolute perspective of existence consciousness place brahman nirguna brahman or is it from the perspective of god saguna brahman both so she you will see how easily she moves between the absolute brahman and the personal god she is moving back and forth and the enlightened person so uh, amazing so she opens the theme is aham rudre vir vasubhis charamyaham i am all the vedic gods she says to her community the the vedic people so the religion at that time was they Uh, had these extensive fire rituals which were called yagas or yagyas and the offerings were made to gods and these gods were gods with small g uh, so they were forces they were beings which controlled the entire universe so a variety of these beings and the purpose was to get their blessing so that you would get what you want the worshipers would get what they want in this life or the next you know um children uh, empires um, cattle uh, abundant crops and rainfall and heaven in the next life and so on so the various vedic gods she says the rudras who are 11 in number the vasus who are 8 the adityas who are supposed to be 12 in number the vishvedevas which are 13 in number um the primary gods of the vedic pantheon mitra varuna agni the fire god indra the twin ashwin twins um somadeva um tushta pusha all of these what about them ultimately they are one reality i and look at the confidence of this lady throughout every verse begins with aham i i am that which you worship as the adityas as the rudras as the, as indra as varuna as uh, um, agni i am that one reality shining in and through all of them all the powers that you see manifested in nature which you deify and worship as gods in the in the vedic pantheon they are not many they are all one reality and i am that reality she is speaking as the personal god see this is thousands of years before the great monotheistic traditions arose in the uh, in the middle east um, at least 
two to three thousand years before the beginning of Judaism, five hundred years after which comes Christianity, eight hundred years after which comes uh, Islam. Long before that, the development that God is one, one reality. Here is Vak, the Rishika Vak Amrini. She is saying, I am that one reality which appears as all the divinities that humanity worships. But there's a little twist here. That one reality is female. I am that. Yes, God exists and God is well woman, <laughs> which is in direct counterpoint to the, the idea that uh, in, in, in the Middle East when this, uh, the Abrahamic traditions arose, it's uh, a male God which, uh, which comes up there. And uh, of course, God is neither male nor female. It's beyond every, uh, gender. But when you express it in this way, she takes this, this route that uh, God, the divinity which is expressed is the mother of the universe. Uh, is The deity is female. If you conceive of a deity as a personal God, conceive of it as mother. Aham dadami dravinam havishmate supravye yajamana yasunvate Think of the great religious activity of the ancient Vedic people where um, across at least the Gangetic Plains there would be these ashrams, there would be these great uh, fire sacrifice uh, altars and flames rising up and smoked into the sky and the sonorous chanting of the Vedic priests and the devotion of the, of the masses all around. This was religion. And she says, all that you offer into all the deities expecting whatever, anything that you want, all that you offer comes to me. Through all the deities that you offer, it comes to God, to the one God. And everything that you get from these, these rituals, whatever you get, worldly, otherworldly, all that comes from me also. This is the great secret that I teach unto you, that every religious activity that you do is, it flows to one reality. Though you may worship it in many forms, beyond, behind all existing powers is one divinity. That has to be recognized. Uh, this is the uh, teaching she gives to the Vedic people. That uh, beyond all the Vedic divinities is one supreme power and that is I, that is God. Or the Divine Mother, the, the Mother Goddess. Um, there's a beautiful saying, you know, Akashat patitam toyam sagaram pratigachati. All the rain that falls from the sky, uh, in rivers and rivulets, in lakes, whatever, ultimately it flows to the same ocean. Similarly, in whichever form you give your offerings, it all flows to the divinity, to the mother goddess, who I am. I am the one who gives all to humanity. So what about the powers of nature, the different powers? They get their power from me. In the Kena Upanishad, the, um, the Vedic gods are shown as different powers of nature and then they um, find uh, that one power appears before them, an extraordinary being before whom they cannot, uh, none of their powers work against this being. They don't realize that this is the ultimate reality of the universe, Brahman, but they don't realize what it is and they're puzzled. And then Brahman disappears. The king of the gods, Indra, is standing there puzzled. What was this extraordinary being before whom all the divine powers of the gods do not work? You know, the fire cannot burn, the wind cannot blow, and so on. He's wondering this. And then the divine mother appears before him, Uma Haimavatim. 
the daughter of the Himalayas, exactly Durga, she appears before him and says, that was Brahman. We'll come to that later. So anything that you want in this world, worldly, you want um, um, money, pleasure, family, um, prosperity, success, you want heaven after death, you want enlightenment and um, God-realization and moksha, nirvana, all of that comes from me. This has to be known. This is the, the great secret of religion. Um, again, two to three millennia before the rise of the monotheistic religions, she says this. Then, Aham Rashtri Sangamani Vasunam Chikitushi Prathama Yajnanam the sheer language. See, even this is Vedic Sanskrit. And you can notice here, those who study Sanskrit, they notice here a kind of vigor, a freshness, simplicity, power and freshness, which later on becomes more ornamental, more so, uh, maybe subtle, more sophisticated maybe. But here it is just sheer, you know, it's natural freshness. Uh, I think it was, um, it was thorough who reading the Gita and the Upanishads says that when you read these pages, you come into contact with the dawn of civilization. Uh, the first light of civilization, you see, is the, the freshness of the human mind. She says, what does she say here? I am the mother of all nations, Aham Rashtri. By the way, for Vedic scholars who might be wondering, where do I get these interpretations from? Um, so two sources. One is Sayana, who is the great commentator on the, uh, on the Vedas. That is, of course, one source. The other one is uh, not so well known. It's more modern, uh, which is Dr. Mahanamavrata Brahmachari. He was a great Vaishnava teacher in uh, Bangladesh and in, uh, in Bengal also, very well known. But there's an interesting connection between him and America. Many people all around the world have heard of Thomas Merton, probably the most famous Christian monk of the 20th century, Thomas Merton. Now, Mahanamavrata Brahmachari was uh, doing, uh, he came to the United States, he did a PhD in theology in, in, the, in Vaishnava studies in the University of Chicago. So this uh, young Indian scholar, he met this young American man, and uh, that man was very interested in Eastern religions, which he maintained throughout his life. But this Mahanamavrata Brahmachari encouraged this young American um, man to investigate Catholicism, which led him to become ultimately become the well, the famous uh, Catholic monk Thomas Merton. So that that story is very interesting. So he has written a book, Chandi Chinta. Chandi Chinta, which means reflections on the Chandi. So where there's a chapter on the Devi Suktam, which I'm using for interpretations. Vagambrini, the, the Rishi, she says, I am the mother of nations. I am the source of civilization. What does that mean? Let me tell you an interesting thing I read um, last year, uh, or year before last. You know this book, Sapiens, uh, you well know Harari, a very interesting take on history. I've always been interested in history. A lot of people find it boring. But I assure you, if you read this book, you will not find it boring and you'll get an interest in history. Now, there is one section in which he talks about the well-known orthodox in history that how did religion originate? So, first of all, you need for religion, you need um, um, a settled life. So, that means agriculture has to be there. 
Agriculture means people settle down. You cannot be a hunter-gatherer, you cannot be a forager if you are cultivating fields. So you settle down, you build a village. And then um, part of that organization leads to organized religion. Some kind of religious activity starts. So before that also they might be, they were um, religious beliefs, some kind of proto-religious beliefs. But what we today recognize is the roots of religion. That started with Settled, settling down, villages, and agriculture. And then they'll be in the middle of the village, somebody builds a temple or something. Yuval Noah Harari says, no. Religion did not organize from, uh, did not arise from the beginning of civilization. Civilization began from religion. How? He says that recently, um, uh, in uh, southeastern Turkey, there's a site which they excavated and they found these huge stone pillars, several meters high. Some of them were seven tons and one partially finished stone pillar was 50 tons. Huge stone pillars with inscriptions and uh, engravings, meanings of which we don't understand today. Now such pillars have been found also. The most famous of them is the Stonehenge in uh, England. But the ones found in Turkey and the ones and the Stonehenge, there's a difference in age. Stonehenge is about 2500 BC. And the ones found in Turkey are 12,000 years ago, about 9,000 BC to 10,000 BC, so now 12,000 years before our time. Clearly before the beginning of agriculture, as far as we know. Before the beginning of agriculture, before the beginning of, um, of uh, village life, certainly before the beginning of cities and nations and all of that. More than 12,000 years ago, you find these huge stones, um, you know, clearly some kind of religious significance. Nothing else, religious significance. Now he says, this is very strange. How did hunter-gatherers, foragers, little groups of little tribes, even small tribes, if you're a forager, hunter-gatherer, you cannot maintain too many people like that. So you have to have very small in number. To build these things, construct them, erect them, maintain them would have taken thousands and thousands of people at the very least. How did they do it? Then they found the next clue. The first evidence of the taming of wheat, cultivated wheat, not just wild wheat, but cultivated wheat, was found near that site. And the stunning conclusion that historians came to was, it's not that these were constructed when there was agriculture and villages and all that. Agriculture and villages were, correct, were, were started in order to construct these things. These things, were the, that was the purpose of, the, you know, uh, of agriculture and village life, in order to have religion. So the motivation for settling down, when you need thousands of people to construct this, you need to feed them, then agriculture starts. Then you need to settle down around it and maintain it and start villages. What an amazing insight. Till now, historians thought, and we had been taught also. Civiliz agriculture starts, civilization starts, you know, and then religion also develops. No, religion develops, and therefore civilization comes. She says, I am the mother of civilization. It is in my worship that you have built up the civilizations of humanity. What an amazing thing. You come down to today, I was just thinking, here, right here. Somebody was saying here, New York is definitely the greatest city of the world. I saw inscribed uh, on the Columbus, uh, um, you know, the, the footpath there. John Lennon, it's, some, it's written in chalk. 
Somebody asked John Lennon that, why do you live in New York? He used to live right here in, in the Dakota. Why do you live in New York? He says, why do I live in New York? If I lived in ancient um, times, I would have lived in Rome. New York is, is verily the Rome of our times. So New York is basically the, the symbol of modern 21st century, 20th century, 21st century civilization here. Um, right here, you have the Statue of Liberty. Now we don't think about it in those terms. We think about it as secular. But just forget the secular religious divide. Think about it. What is the spirit, the ideology, the idea behind the Statue of Liberty? Just look at the, look at the statue itself. There is the flame, the light. And on the other hand, the books. I know it's a tablet, but it's, it's books. Let's call it books. Today, tablet means something else. <laughs> so it's books. And I think there are chains, broken chains under her feet. You go beyond the bondage. You go beyond bondage by knowledge and the light of liberty and freedom. Freedom is attained. Um, bondage is overcome through knowledge. And the whole thing is represented by the mother figure, the female figure. This is exactly what she's talking about. Three, four thousand years ago. How do you know? Isn't it a stretch? Not really. Who recognized this? Swami Vivekananda, who is a true child of the Rishi <laughs> Vagambrini. Uh, 4,000 years later, a representative, of one, one of the best representatives of that tradition, comes to these shores. And, she, and he says, Hail Columbia, Mother of Liberty. Uh, he immediately recognized the spirit. There's a book, The Gift Unopened, by uh, Eleanor Stark, I think. Uh, so there the author writes that Vivekananda's teachings and Vedanta is the gift to America, which is still unopened, which brings to America the idea of her own greatness, not just the secular greatness, not just the economic greatness or the military or political greatness, the spiritual greatness. The Statue of Liberty is a spiritual figure, actually, and we need to discover that. So she says, Aham Rashtri, I am the spirit of nations, I am the mother of nations, I am the source of civilization. Chikitushi, I am, I am spiritual knowledge embodied. Chikitushi Prathama Yajjyanam. To those who want it, I reveal spiritual knowledge. The teachings of spirituality, highest teachings of religion. Going ahead. Then next, even more amazing. Mayaso Annamati Yo Vipashyati Yaf Pranitiya Im Srinotyuktam. All beings who eat consume food and live on food. You see, you, you all who see and you hear, um, all life, it is sustained by me, in and through me. Now what is amazing about this? In the Keno Upanishad, which if you look at it historically, now I'll just mention here, traditionally, if you ask a traditional Vedic scholar, they, they will completely reject all this historical analysis. They will say the Vedas are timeless. It's not that... Um, she came earlier and the Upanishads came later. They're all timeless and revealed together. But let's do historical analysis. If you do historical analysis, then she came earlier and the Upanishads came later. Centuries later, you find in one of the most important, extraordinary Upanishads, Keno Upanishad. It starts with, 
ಕೇನೇಶಿತಂ ಪತತಿ ಪ್ರೇಷಿತಂ ಮನಃ ಕೇನ ಪ್ರಾಣ ಪ್ರಥಮ ಪ್ರಯೀತಿಯುಕ್ತ ಕೇನೇಶಿತಾಂ ವಾಚಮಿಮಾಂ ವದಂತಿ ಚಕ್ಷುಶ್ರೋತ್ರಂ ಕೌದೇವ ಯುನಕ್ತಿ ವಟ್ ಡಸ್ ಇಟ್ ಮೀನ್ ಇಂಪೆಲ್ಡ್ ಬೈ ವಾಟ್ ಡೂ ದೀಸ್ ವರ್ಡ್ಸ್ ಕಮ್ ಔಟ್ ವಾಟ್ ಇಲ್ಯೂಮಿನ್ಸ್ ದೀಸ್ ಥಾಟ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ವೇರ್ ಡೂ ದೀಸ್ ಥಾಟ್ಸ್ ಅರೈಸ್ ಬೈ ವಾಟ್ ಡೂ ಐ ವಾಟ್ ಡಸ್ ಒನ್ ಸ್ಪೀಕ್ ವಾಟ್ ಬೈ ವಾಟ್ ಕೌದೇವ ವಾಟ್ ವಾಟ್ ಬ್ರೈಟ್ ಬೀಯಿಂಗ್ Uh, enables me to see and hear and smell and taste and touch and breathe all the activities of cognition the sense organs activity the, the activities of thinking the the activities of the motor organs eating walking talking all of that what is the one light which illumines all of that and then the upanishad itself answers in paradoxical language ಶ್ರೋತ್ರಸ್ಯ ಶ್ರೋತ್ರ ಮನಸೋ ಮನೋಯದ್ ವಾಚೋಹ ವಾಚ ಸೌ ಪ್ರಾಣಸ್ಯ ಪ್ರಾಣ ಚಕ್ಷುಷಶ್ಚಕ್ಷುರತಿಮುಚ್ಯ ಧೀರ ಪ್ರೀತ್ಯಸ್ಮನ್ ಲೋಕಾದಮೃತಿ ಯು ಆಸ್ಕ್ ವಾಟ್ ಇಸ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ವಿಚ್ ಶೈನ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಥ್ರೂ ಆಲ್ ಅವರ್ ಕಾಗ್ನಿಷನ್ಸ್ ಅವರ್ ಪರ್ಸೆಪ್ಷನ್ಸ್ ಆಲ್ ಅವರ್ ಆಕ್ಟಿವಿಟೀಸ್ ಇಟ್ ಇಸ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಒನ್ ಲೈಟ್ ವಿಚ್ ಇಸ್ ದ ಇಯರ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಇಯರ್ ದ ಐ ಆಫ್ ದ ಐ ದ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಯು ಆಸ್ಕ್ ಹೌ ಡು ಐ ಸ್ಪೀಕ್ ಡೋಂಟ್ ಟೆಲ್ ಮೀ ದ ಸ್ಪೀಚ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಸ್ಪೀಚ್ ಯು ಆರ್ ರೈಟ್ ದ ಸ್ಪೀಚ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಸ್ಪೀಚ್ Uh, the breath of the breath and knowing this the one the the seeker the spiritual seeker who knows this goes beyond death transcends death transcends suffering what exactly is the spiritual quest in its at its core how do you do it and what is the result everything has been said here to put it simply without paradoxical language you can say what he uh, what the upanishad is talking about the rishi of the upanishad kena upanishad is saying this one consciousness one awareness when you see are you not aware when you hear are you not aware when you smell taste touch speak think are you not aware you are seeing hearing smelling touching thinking speaking these are all different activities but is the awareness behind all of them is the awareness in itself different no it is one reality which shines in and through all of these activities and gives us that first person experience yeah, so you'll say now he'll speak about the hard problem of consciousness <laughs> no so the first person experience is made possible by this one uh, non object pure subject awareness the light of this awareness what the buddhists call the clear light of the void shining in and through so she says i am that light she is not only the cosmic power behind all the gods which controls the universe which is the recipient of all worship the source of civilization but in each of us in our in our lives whatever is going on in our lives it is all possible because of that one light which is the divine mother which is our real the core of ourselves that shining all else shines by its light all is lit up tameva bhantam anubhati sarvam tasya bhasa sarvam idam vibhati kathopanishad what is that light it is the divine mother she says i am that light what is that light it's you it's our real nature i am that real, that light which shines through every activity of life it's only because of her without that light all darkness imagine if i cannot hear i'll still be aware but i'll be aware that i can't hear anything i'm i'm deaf if i can't see 
I'll still be aware. It'll just be, it'll be a dark world, but I'm aware that I can't see anything. But look at the, reverse it. Suppose eyes are functioning, brain centers are functioning, ears are functioning, but awareness is not there. Then, will it be that, I, I can hear, I can see, but I'm not aware, that's all. Impossible, you're laughing, and impossible, correct. It's so ridiculous. The world will go dark for us. Without awareness. Awareness is that which makes entirety of life possible. The experience, the experience of life is possible because of awareness. She says that is one awareness. And uh, it is an immortal light. It is I. I am that. It also means I am that. That means she is speaking as God. Uh, as the mother goddess. But you are that. Your real nature is that. So you and she are one reality. What, the, what is the reality of God or the or reality of the mother goddess and the reality, your reality, one and the same. This is the meaning of tattvamasi, that thou art. When we say aham brahmasmi in Vedanta, I am Brahman, we don't mean anything more than that. We mean that, that um, pure awareness, pure consciousness. That light which shines through all our activities, thoughts, feelings, experiences of life. There's more to it, but we'll get to that. Then she sounds a note of warning. Those who do not know this secret, those who do not reflect upon it and assimilate it, they wither away. They go from death to death. The Kenu Upanishad also wants this. Yeah. It says, If you know this secret, if you realize this, you, are, you have attained reality. You become immortal, go beyond death. If you do not know this, you go from death to death. Great is the loss in human life. If, you, if one dies, goes away from this life without realizing this identity. Your identity with the Divine Mother. Your identity with pure consciousness. She says here, Amanta Vomam, who has not realized me, who has not reflected upon me, who is not centered in me, that one withers. A withers away means he's continuously whirled in the Cycle of birth and death. Then she goes on. Again, beautiful, simple, powerful Sanskrit. Ahameva swayamidam vadami jushtam deve bhi bhi. I myself reveal spiritual knowledge, religion to humans and gods. I myself, aham swayameva idam vadami jushtam I reveal the highest truths the beautiful the, the sacred the idea of revelation the, at the source of religion lies revelation whether you say it is the Vedas it is, or uh, um, what was revealed to the Jewish prophets or um, uh, to Prophet Muhammad the whole claim is that the source of religion is this revelation and she says I am that which reveals religion to humanity I speak by myself. What does that mean? Here Mahanamabrata Brahmachari points out something interesting. The enlightened one, after long struggle, spiritual practice, you realize I am Brahman, whatever your spiritual realization, and then you speak. So your spiritual practice, your journey, your realization, then you speak. That's one. The rishis, to them was revealed the secrets of the Vedas. They also speak. That's two. But here it is God speaking. Not by my spiritual practice, she says here. I'm not speaking out of, I worked hard and then I got something and I'm giving it to you. No. Not it was revealed to me, I'm transmitting it to you. Like the rishis or the prophets. Not even that. I am the source. 
I am that which is giving this the spiritual knowledge to all of humanity from cycle to cycle in every cycle of creation and destruction existence of the universe the cycle of creation existence and destruction of the universe srishti sthiti pralaya in every cycle i am the one who reveals aham idam swayam eva vadami jushtam to the gods and the humans we are reminded of the beautiful vedic mantra that um, you know which is swami vivekananda loved this you know when you, when you ask what is religion he would love to quote this शृण्वंतु विश्वे अमृतस्य पुत्रा आये धामानि दिव्यानि तस्तु ही सेज दैट सम ऋषि समवेयर वी डू नॉट नो हूम सेड दैट लिसन ऑल यी चिल्ड्रन ऑफ इमार्टल ब्लिस नॉट ओनली ह्यूमन बीइंग्स ही सेज द गॉड्स इन द हेवन्स आल्सो यू आल्सो लिसन स्मॉल जी गॉड्स गॉड्स इन द हेवन्स यू आल्सो लिसन बिकॉज़ व्हाट आई एम गोइंग टू से यू डू नॉट नो Vedaham purusham mahantam. I have realized that infinite being. Aditya varnam tamasaf parastad. What is the nature of that infinite being? Of the nature of endless consciousness, endless the light of awareness. Not this, the empirical consciousness which we are talking about here. That which lights this up. The endless consciousness, the limitless consciousness. I am Aditya Varnam, Tamasaf Parastad, forever beyond the darkness of death and suffering. Tameva Viditwa Ati Mrityumeti, knowing that one goes beyond death. Nanyaf Pantha Vidyate Ayanaya. There is no other path. No secular path will take you to that. In Silicon Valley, they are trying very hard how to attain immortality in the body. Won't work. I did an interview a couple of months back in Hollywood. So there's this um, history channel. So we have a program called The Unexplained. So I was interviewed, um, and uh, they wanted to know if you can sort of preserve the body. How do yogis live long? And can you upload your consciousness into the cloud and <laughs> somehow con- continue with the f- this physical existence? So they're doing a program on that. and the host is william shatner captain kirk star trek and he's in the news now at the age of 90 he's going to go to uh, to space yes yes so i told the interviewer that uh, why don't you ask william shatner he's practically immortal himself he's 90 years <laughs> he's been acting since 1951 <laughs> so he's practically immortal himself the only way to attain immortality is to realize the immortal which is that existence consciousness bliss the absolute and she says i am that which reveals this truth she is speaking here as the personal god the, the god of religion swayam idam vadami to the to human beings and to gods exactly the language of the rishis and that rishi who spoke this which swami vivekananda quoted she must have been centuries if not millennia before that rishi then again another very very important beautiful truth yam kamaye tam tamugram krinomi tam brahmanam tam rishim tam sumedham whoever worships me with devotion whatever they want i give them that this one i make brahma the creator of the universe that one i make a rishi and the other one i make the greatest intellectual that there ever was tam brahmanam tam rishim tam sumedham it all comes from her it is her gift to give 
Now, Brahma is supposed to be the greatest being of this universe, who is manifested at the beginning of creation and who makes the rest of the universe. And so that's supposed to be the highest possible position for a jiva, sentient being to attain. But another meaning of I make that one a Brahma means I make that one an enlightened one. And this is not a stretch interpretation because if you look at the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, the first one to become enlightened was Brahma. The Brahma who realized Aham Brahmasmi. Not I am this Brahma, but I am Brahman, the ultimate reality. So if you want to become enlightened, that's what she's saying. If you want to become enlightened, you want to be free of the cycle of birth and death. You want God-realization, moksha, nirvana. Worship me. By my grace alone it is possible. Now, tam Brahmanam, Tam Rishim, Tam Sumedham. Those who want to be a great sage. Those who want to, uh, uh, to you know, become... Uh, Einstein or something like that. <laughs> it is by the grace of the Divine Mother that this tremendous insights into um, to, into religion and spirituality come. Uh, I remember um, Swami Brahmananda was there in Kashi in Banaras and uh, the Holy Mother Masharada Devi was also there. So she asked somebody to go and ask Rakhal, Swami Brahmananda, why do you need to worship the Divine Mother? You have the Upanishads. You have Vedanta, Drik Drishya, Vivek, Panchadashi, Aparokshanabhuti and all of that. You have the direct teaching. So you just practice that. Indiscriminate. I am not the body, I am not the mind. And then you realize that uh, I am Brahman. You realize your true identity. But uh, it's not that easy. And you might say, we know Swami. We have been coming to the Vedanta Society for decades now. <laughs> it's not that easy. Yes. So grace is necessary. That's what all spiritual seekers throughout the ages have realized. And we call it grace, kripa. So the grace comes from the Divine Mother. Uh, so it is... So Swami Brahmananda asked him and he said... The keys to the enlightenment, keys to Brahmagyana, the knowledge of Brahman is in the hands of the Divine Mother. Out of emotion speaking, out of devotion to Masharada, because Sri Ramakrishna was his guru, so Masharada is the wife of the guru, so reverence to her, that's why she, he's saying out the keys to Brahmagyana in her hands. Four or five thousand years before that, Vagamrini, she has said, Yam Kamaye Tam Ugram Tam Tamugram Krinomi. I raise that one, the one who worships with any particular desire, I raise that one to the heights of excellence, to the Everest of excellence. Whether you want to be an enlightened one, whether you want to be a Rishi, whether you want to be the greatest intellectual who ever lived, it comes from my blessings. It's true. I have seen it um, that, yes, even with the slightest bit of effort, but by the grace of the Divine Mother, immediately, something that we do not deserve at all is entirely possible, entirely possible. That also you can get by yourself, by the grace of God again, but with enormous amount of effort and careful practice for maybe lifetimes. It can take time. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna said in Banaras, which is the land of uh, Vishwanatha, Shiva, and Annapurna, the Divine Mother. So Annapurna is the one who, who gives food. So the 
language Sri Ramakrishna used is that no one goes hungry in the land of Annapurna. You will be fed, but some are fed in the morning, some in the afternoon, some in the late afternoon, some have to wait till evening. What is morning, afternoon, late afternoon, evening? Doesn't seem much. You have to wait. Little hungry you may be. This is the life, the day of the universe. <laughs> At the beginning of creation, in the middle of creation where we are, and towards the dusk and darkness which comes at the end of the universe. One may have to wait <laughs> many, many lifetimes. I am reminded of this little silly little joke I had read uh, in Reader's Digest many, many years ago. So this man, he um, prays to God and God appears before him. What do you want? This man is very clever. He says, I don't want much. Lord, you are infinite. Eh? You have everything. Um, like one penny uh, of yours is equal to a, a billion dollars uh, for us. All I want from you is one of one. Give me one penny from your treasure house, uh, which is equal to a billion dollars for me. That's all I want. That's easy for you, isn't it, Lord? The Lord says, "You are right. One penny is equal to your billion dollars. I'll give it to you. Wait for one second. <laughs> so, how many lifetimes that will be? So, there was one devotee of the Holy Mother, very devoted person. Um, he, he got initiation from the Holy Mother, uh, Ma Sharada Devi. And long after she had passed on, uh, he, he suffered a lot in his life. Many family problems, health problems, family problems, terrible stuff. But all throughout he maintained his peace of mind, devotion, with a, with a sort of serene heart he saw through all of that. He used to say that when I got initiation, Mother looked at me carefully and she said, she warned me, said, Baba, my child, I see that you have a little suffering in your life. <laughs> and she did this. <laughs> this is the way the Bengali uh, women this speak. They say, when they mean a little, they mean this. And, he's, and he says, this is what is little suffering. If she had said, if you have a lot of suffering in your life, what would have happened? <laughs> You know, what was they, this little suffering is? I'm devastated by this. <laughs> then she goes on to say, "Aham." Again, every verse starts with "Aham." I is completely confident, established in a divinity. "Aham Rudraya Dhanuratanomi Brahma Dvise Sharave Hantavau." I, you know, the, all the Obstacles that come on the path of enlightenment. I remove them. I'm proactive. I put the arrows on the, on the bow of the mighty Rudra. Uh, who uh, destroys all the enemies of the spiritual seekers. That means every obstacle that comes in spiritual life. I'm on your side. Never fear. Everything will be overcome. And you will attain to God realization. I am the one. She, how, what, look at the poetry. I fix the arrows on on the bow of Rudra, the mighty Rudra, uh, who takes aim at all the obstacles and the enemies of those who seek Brahman. Brahm so, I do that. Then, another interesting part, Aham Janaya Samadam Krinomi Aham Dhyava Prithivi Abhishesha. It's like a war cry. I make war for the benefit of humanity, for the benefit of my children. I make war. I pervade the earth and the sky and I make war. Now this is interesting. 
Let's face it squarely. Throughout history, tribes have fought against other tribes, cities and nation states have fought against other, nation, other cities and nation states, and everyone has claimed God is on my side. And not only that, even further, and even worse, I'm fighting for the sake of God. I was, um, I saw in, at Harvard University, there is a beautiful memorial church. Um, so if you go in there, uh, you see on one wall the names of all the alumni of Harvard who were killed in the First World War, Second World War. It's all written there, ex-students. One whole wall is full of that, those names. You will see, interesting, some of them, I noticed carefully, they are German names, so they were German students who studied at Harvard, went back and fought on the German side against uh, Americans. So it's written name so-and-so within bracket, enemy. <laughs> so, um, but still student, our student, yeah. but enemy. Now, now notice, uh, notice the um, amazing confluence. It's so interesting. Church, university, war. Uh, religion, education, warfare, all coming together in such an amazing way. It's, it's a fact, we cannot turn our eyes from it, that God has been invoked in the worst of human enterprises, a war. That's a wrong use of religion, that's an abuse of religion, but that spark is there. Still, it's also a fact that, um, that there is this spirit which comes forward to protect humanity in its worst times, when, when the forces of evil are strong and powerful. In the uh, United States here, here you say the last good war was the Second World War, they say. And we, have, we, we don't have Bill here today, so we actually have a Second World War veteran, someone who fought in the last uh, good war. What is this last good war? Where clearly the forces arrayed against you are detrimental to civilization detrimental to the to the universal order and so she says i take i make war for the protection of of people janaya samadam krinomi i engage in war for the protection of people and i pervade the earth and the skies the latest concept of air land battle i think <laughs> then highest advaita Mamayoni Rapswantas Samudri, she says. My womb is the vast ocean of Satchidananda, from which emerge the, emerges the universe, in which plays the universe and disappears the universe back again. Ashtavakra sings, Aham Mai Ananta Maham Bodhau Vishwa Vichi Swabhavata Udetu Vastamayatu Name Vriddhi Navakshati. I am this infinite ocean of existence consciousness. In this ocean, small waves come up. They are no, nothing but these entire universes which come up. Let the waves arise, let the waves subside. The ocean does not increase or decrease thereby. Similarly, I, this, she is saying here, I am that infinite ocean of existence consciousness. The universe emerges like waves in me. Uh, and so when the wave is coming up, isn't the wave still a part of the ocean? Certainly. Isn't the wave still in the water? Of course, it's nothing other than water. And when it disappears, where does it disappear to? Water again. 
So that uh, commentator Mahanamavrata Brahmachari, he writes very touchingly. What does this mean? This means we are forever on the lap of the mother. It's not that we have come from the mother, now we are distant from the mother, one day what God knows where we are going. No, we have come from the mother. We are forever on the lap of the mother and at death we go back to the mother in the individual sense and in the sense of the entire cosmos. The cosmos lies in the lap of the mother. That is the meaning of this. In me, the infinite consciousness, the universe floats. Then the conclusion. Soaring, what poetry. Um, it's really moving. Ahameva vataiva pravavami arabhamana bhuvanani vishwa. At the beginning of the universe, she says, Arabhamana Bhuvanani Vishwa, when the worlds were created, I blew through that like a breeze. Blew through that like a breeze later, much later. In Taittiriya Upanishad it is said that Tatsrishtva Tadeva Nupravishat. Having created that, I entered into it. What does that mean? It's like, imagine the waves coming up and the water says, having created the waves, I enter into it. Which means, I, the waves are nothing but me. The universe is nothing but me. I sustain all the universe by giving it existence. Sat, existence. By giving it light, awareness, chit. And giving it meaning, ananda. So all existence, life and death is sat. All knowledge, awareness, experience is chit. All meaning and love and seeking and purpose is ananda. And how she's expressing it, she says, as a breeze I blew through the universe at its beginning, investing it with existence and light and meaning. And then she says, even more stunning, the conclusion is stunning. This entire universe comes from me, exists in my lap and disappears into me. Uh, I have invested it with existence, light and meaning. It is nothing to me. She says, I transcend it completely. He says, Paro diva parayena. Beyond this is the transcendent sky of existence, consciousness, bliss, which is my real form. And I pervade this universe also. Swami Vivekananda said, We Hindus worship a transcendent, immanent God. Satchidananda Brahman, which is entirely beyond this universe, beyond time, space uh, and causation, beyond Maya, is the reality. In uh, Vedanta Sarva, the first thing we learn, Vastu Satchidananda Madhvayam Brahma, the reality is existence, consciousness, place, non-dual Brahman. Agyanadi Sakala Jarasamuha Avastu, from ignorance downwards, from Maya downwards, everything else is an appearance. She's saying this here. And yet she says, whatever else you see in the universe, that also is I. I transcend it all and yet I am in and through all of it. Just yesterday I was seeing, a very nice article has come out. Einstein believed in Spinoza's God. But what is this Spinoza's God? And the description is something pretty close to this. What Spinoza was struggling to say, see God cannot be entirely transcendent. He was struggling in the orthodox Jewish interpretation at that time. So God is beyond all of this. And it has to be. If God is not beyond all of this, then God is limited and imperfect and terrible. So God has to be perfect. So perfect means you have to save God from this mess. So God is beyond this. Yes, this is a mess. Born, birth, messy. Life is messy. Death is even worse. There is so much evil and suffering in this world. If this is God, it is not a good, particularly good God. 
He's a miserable God then. So God has to be transcendent. But then that creates terrible problems. What is the problem? The problem is that then you have two realities, God and this world. A perfect God somewhere. We have no idea where, when, how, because it's beyond all where, beyond all when, beyond all how. Time, space, causation, beyond all of that. Desha kala vastu shunya in Sanskrit. Beyond the limitation of space, time and causation and object. And then you have this imperfect universe. This is the reality which we are experiencing right now. You have two. What is the problem? The problem is then that God you are talking about, it becomes strictly limited. It becomes too small. Why? Because there is something that God is not. The moment you say that you admit the existence of a second reality apart from God, to that extent God becomes less. This is the problem with all the dualistic, theistic religions of the world. That God is something else. Immediately you are saying, God is not God. That God is not worth worshipping. It's a limited entity. Worse, the moment you divorce God from this universe, then God exists only as a matter of speculation and belief. You have no more doors to the divinity anymore. And by looking at this universe, all theologians for a thousand years, Christian theologians, um, Islamic theologians, the dualistic Hindu theologians, they've been desperately trying to prove God. Look at this universe by design, by the first cause argument, this and that. Modern science laughs at all of that. Every one of your arguments can be refuted or at least diffused by modern science. This amazing diversity of life. There must be an intelligence behind it. Darwinian evolution tells you and modern neo-Darwinians will tell you we can demonstrate through computer models and all how just by the force of you know, uh, evolution, survival of the fittest, random mutation, genetic mutation, you can have this tremendous diversity of life. You don't need uh, uh, some kind of intelligence to explain all this. No, just the existence of the universe. There must be a first cause. Yes, the first cause can be explained by, um, or at least hinted at, by quantum mechanics as a so-called, you know, the emergence of um, quantum in, in the, you know, the before the Big Bang, uh, particles emerging, matter, antimatter disappearing. Some of it emerges and does not disappear back again and emerges into a full-fledged universe. I'm quoting Michio Kaku here, the God equation. You can explain it. No God in the process at all. You cannot really seriously argue from the just this material universe to God, not today, in 21st century. It doesn't work. Those old proofs of, they are very interesting proofs of the existence of God, but they, they are not convincing. They are rather underwhelming, not overwhelming. <laughs> you cannot argue from this. Then what happens? That God of belief, the God of speculation, the theistic, dualistic, other God, becomes very weak. Alan Watts says, when you have a pot, clay pot, and then you are told that there is a cause of this clay pot. It's called clay. There is something called clay, which is the cause of this clay pot. Something called God, which is the cause of this universe. Now, if you look for the clay other than the clay pot, other than the pot, if you're looking for clay, other than this universe, if you're looking for a cause outside, 
Other than the pot you're looking for the clay, Alan Watts calls it the crackpot idea. He says, you go one step forward and say that which is the cause of this universe, that which is the reality of this universe is right here and now. It is immanent in this universe. But because it's also transcendent, it can be perfect. It can be eternal. It can be, can be beyond all good and evil, cause and effect. And yet be the cause of this, uh, be the substance or the reality of this universe, the ground of this universe. Mystics in all the world religions came to this understanding. It's only in, in um, Advaita Vedanta and arguably in some forms of Mahayana Buddhism that a whole framework developed. It became mainstream. Non-dualism became mainstream. So non-dualism, at the core of the idea of non-dualism, that there is only one reality without a second, even when everything else is appearing. Even then, there is only one non-dual reality. At the core of that idea is the transcendent immanent God. Long before the dialectics of Advaita Siddhi and Khandana Khandakadya, the extraordinarily difficult text of Advaita Vedanta, long before them, long before Shankaracharya, who wrote the commentaries on the Upanishads, Gaudapada, who proved non-causality, Ajatavada, uh, the, the theory of the non-origination of the universe. Long before them, when the Brahma Sutras, uh, long before that, the Upanishads who declared these truths, Long before that, millennia before that, is this the voice of this lady who is saying the ultimate reality is transcendent and immanent. How do you know? I am that reality. She has no qualms about saying it. But as you are also. You d I know it, you do not know it. That's the difference. Parodiva, uh, parayena. I am in the transcendent world. Also, oh, you are in completely different from this world. And she says, And in and through this entire world of the heaven and the earth, I pervade all of that and remain established in my own glory. That is the reality of Vagambrini, that, that Rishi whom we salute today, who appears in the form of the Divine Mother Durga, who is the light in all of us, who has given us the highest knowledge who is at the foundation of, of religion, the foundation of civilization, the entire human project, the foundation of this universe, and the ultimate highest teaching of how you can realize that truth and go beyond suffering, go beyond death, realize the destination of the destiny of human life. So salutations to her on this uh, occasion when we are beginning the worship of the Divine Mother. Can we have that chorus once again? It's good to end with that uh, beautiful chorus. Let's listen. Now we know the background. Let's listen to it once again.
On this occasion, I pray to the Divine, Divine Mother Durga, to Sri Ramakrishna, to Ma Sharada Devi, to Swami Vivekananda for their blessings on this auspicious Devi Paksha. May our lives be blessed. Uh, may we attain to the highest goal of human life, which is enlightenment and freedom in this very life itself. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Arpanamastur